Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of Encompass. Go to encompass-europe.com for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Martin Sandbu. Martin Sandbu is the economics commentator at the Financial Times and author of a new book, The Economics of Belonging. We're going to spend uh, most of this conversation, Martin, talking about your new book. Uh, and it's tantalizing prescriptions as well as the analysis. But before that, I want to run something by you. In the not so recent past, uh, the kind of attacks or, or reappraisal of capitalism was the kind of property of sort of center left, left wing uh, public intellectuals and writers and thought leaders such as um, Thomas Piketty, uh, Mariana Matsukatu, um, Paul Krugman, Joseph Stiglitz. But now it seems becoming more mainstream. There are people like yourself working for the Financial Times. The Economist regularly writes about you know, the new kind of capitalism. The BRT, the Business Roundtable in Washington, is talking about a repurposing of, of the corporation. Uh, and all this talk about a new kind of compassionate capitalism, inclusive capitalism, um, stakeholder capitalism. Is this a, 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 the, new, the new reality that everybody's now talking about the need, the urgent need to rethink capitalism? I think you're right. Um, I mean, you mentioned the FT. Uh, my newspaper ran an editorial a couple of months ago saying that we need to rethink the social contract and this whole language of the social contract is very much at the center of the conversation now. Uh, I think one reason why it's become mainstream even before the COVID crisis is, um, you know, it, it's sort of the pitchfork reason. People were seeing that it was the thinkers and the movements on the extremes who were calling for radical change and uh, being heard and clearly answering a need among among voters. And it's not just the sort of sensible but radical left-wing thinkers you talked about, but also populist movements of the, of the left, but especially of the right uh, and some of these anti-liberal movements that we've seen. So on top of that and exposes these big inequalities and fault lines societies were already suffering from and actually making them worse. So I think everyone's become more aware that there are problems that, that go structure, and that's why we're having these conversations. Right. Well, to your, to your great credit, this is not an academic book. You're not just content with analyzing the situation and then kind of pointing it out to the readers. You actually have some suggestions. And the, I should point out to the listeners of this podcast, the, the subtitle of your book is uh, A Radical Plan to Win Back the Left Behind and Achieve Prosperity for All. So maybe that's my cue just to ask the first question about the book. What prompted you to write the book in the first place? Well, it was written before uh, the latest crisis, sort of finishing uh, finishing proofs just as coronavirus was traveling to Europe and, and the US. Um, what prompted me was probably what has prompted a lot of people to, to kind of rethink how they see the world uh, over the last five years, which was this, this, this backlash against the Western liberal social market economy model. Uh, and accepting, in my case, that uh, a lot of the people who are angry and are supporting the, these fringe movements uh, and want to throw things, you know, topple things, topple the system, if you like, the anti-system forces, that, that anger is to a large extent legitimate. There are people who have uh, something to be angry about. Uh, and I think what they have to be legitimately angry about is economic. So what I, what I refer to as belonging, I talk about an, an era of economic belonging, or at least moving towards that in the roughly three decades after the Second World War, where you saw economic convergence in a lot of different dimensions in every Western country. Income inequality went down, wealth inequality went down, regional disparities within countries went down. I think that's very important. 
all of that either stagnated or went into reverse, sort of around 1980. Uh, and so we've had four decades of increased divergence in many ways. And I think increased economic divergence has led to different lifestyles, more separate lives, more separate cultures, and ultimately political division that's now being exploited. And, uh, you know, it's a very big problem that's really tearing our societies apart at the seam. And for many, as with many other supporters of the old liberal order, the two events in 2016, the, uh, the Brexit referendum and the Trump election, were, you know, they were kind of mileposts on that road. So we need to really rethink what's gone wrong. And what I've tried to do in the book is to say we need to admit that things have gone wrong in the economy and we need to fix them, but we need to diagnose them right. And one of the big claims I make is that it's not about economic openness, globalization, building down frontiers and borders. Uh, it is largely mismanagement in domestic policy by national politicians of the sort of structural changes that have happened because technology develops, productive processes change, and the jobs of today aren't the jobs of yesterday. We haven't tackled that well. We could have tackled it better. We can tackle it better today. And that's what I try to contribute to. Right. I'm sure we'll cover uh, President Trump and Brexit in the course of this chat, uh, Martin. Uh, but you then mentioned um, this sense of belonging, which you write a lot about in the book. Uh, could you give a sense of, of how, how critical, how acute this problem is? You quote, I quote you, you say, the end of belonging was a colossal fall from grace for the, for the Western model. Uh, what, what, is, what do you mean actually by this, this sense of belonging and the, the fall, of, fall from grace? Look, let's let's take an example that that's maybe a little bit less common than the the ones you normally hear about in the English speaking press. You know, the industrial towns in the north of England or in the U.S. Rust Belt. And, and let's talk about something that European listeners are, are familiar with: the gilets jaunes, yellow vests mm. um, phenomenon. All these protests against uh, President Macron. So there's an interesting finding about where the yellow vests protests were most likely to take place. We know that they kind of came out of left-behind areas in France, quite similar actually to the Rust Belt or the post-industrial north of England. Um, but one particularly important indicator in, uh, in where these protests were more likely to erupt is that they were the places that had lost their last local supermarket, their épicerie. Mm. Uh, there were also places that had lost a lot of public services, you know, the post office had closed, but these, these places um, that are economic meeting places, if you like, uh, this is why I like this supermarket example, this is where people sort of would, would meet in doing their daily shopping. Uh, and if you look at uh, surveys of what people say in, in the north of England, in these uh, left behind post-industrial towns, one thing that keeps coming up is that what they really, one thing they really like is, is a nice functioning high street again. Yeah, yeah. So th these are sort of illustrations of what belonging means. An economic system where you feel that you belong, that has something to offer for you, where you have a place. So my contention is that a lot of the politics, the toxic politics we, we see, is driven by maybe not a majority, but a large group, a large minority of people who, don't, who no longer find a place in the national economy. And that's what we have to fix. That's what restoring belonging, economic belonging would mean. Okay, you quite 
uh, quite bravely and certainly unfashionably uh, make a strong case for globalization or your definition of globalization. You say it's too often used as scapegoat. You want to say economic openness is another way of expressing the notion of uh, globalization is not just not a threat, but in fact a positive contribution to the domestic economy of belonging. So again, could you make that connection for us? Please? Yeah, so, so there are two claims here really. One is First of all, a lot of the things that are blamed on globalization are wrongly blamed on globalization. So this is, if you like, the, the, the negative claim, right? It, it's not its fault. And, it, you know, I give so many examples in the books, but uh, if you think about a simple thing, the timing doesn't really fit because the, the end of belonging really started in the late 70s, around 1980. Globalization, either in the form of trade with poorer countries or massive capital flows across national borders or immigration from, you know, especially sort of low paid immigration from poorer countries into richer countries, all of that sort of took off in the mid 1990s and the 2000s. And yet something had already been underway for some time. And actually, if you think back, several of the anti liberal uh, movements and parties that are strong today first came onto the scene in uh, in the 1980s. Um, you know, think about the, uh, the Front National or the Norwegian Progress Party, for example. So, another example is that the countries that have tackled the end of belonging best are actually the most open countries. I'm thinking here of the Scandinavian, the, the European Nordics, whereas the US has probably tackled it the worst of all and is a relatively closed economy. So, and then you could look at individual studies and so on. But that's one part of the claim. If you actually look closely, it doesn't seem to fit that it's been that's globalization that's driven these unfavorable economic outcomes. Um, and instead, you can trace the economic harm that is admittedly there to poor national policies. So, so this is another important part of the book, that actually national politicians have had a lot more power than they, than they often let on, than maybe have even believed themselves they could have done better. So the second part of the claim is that if you get the domestic policies right, uh, then not only is globalization not a threat, but it is an opportunity that can actually uh, be made to benefit pretty much everyone. So you can work in sync with a domestic economy of belonging. And one example of that is uh, if you think about the left behind places, how do you turn them around? Well, you're not going to go back to mass industrial employment that you had in the 1950s and the 1960s. But the, 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 the success stories you do find in some places either former manufacturing areas that have managed to turn around into very new specialized forms of manufacturing or into services. One case I quite like is Grand Rapids, Michigan in the US that was one of these industrial decline kind of areas, but a number of fortuitous positive factors came together, uh, including the presence of a medical consortium, sort of medical research, and local manufacturers managed to switch in, switch from low-value uh, manufacturing to high-value manufacturing. One example was uh, somebody who'd done, uh, you know, I don't know if it was cling film or something, moving into medical-grade packaging, much more high-skilled and, and high-value. But you do that if you actually have a global market available to you, whether it's manufacturing or services. You're not going to save declining areas by closing off, closing them off from the world, but by equipping them to actually make use of a global economy.
Well, let's go then to, to Trump's America. Obviously, as you put out the claim, uh, explained in the book, his victory is very much a reflection of this, this, this sense of not belonging. But in the possible event, probable event of a, of a Biden victory in November, will things change dramatically or will many of these uh, developments happening in both American society and American economies already happening before his election and so well entrenched that the, a change of occupant of the Oval Office will not change dramatically uh, the, the state of the United States? Look, policies uh, and therefore politics is not everything. So the big drivers here, I argue, are deep economic changes. And you see that because you see the same dynamics in every rich country in the world to, to a greater or lesser extent, but the same forces are at work. So this is something deep. And as I explained, it has to do with technology. You don't need as many industrial jobs as before. Western countries actually haven't lost their industry. They're still producing as much industrial goods as before, but they don't need the jobs for it anymore. And you can, you know, you can think about computerization has got rid of, uh, of a lot of clerical jobs. The internet is threatening standard retail jobs. AI will probably get rid of, you know, you'll get automated driving, you'll get rid of some driver's jobs. So technology is, uh, is driving things everywhere. But policies are not nothing. Right. So we really need to find the right policies to address uh, a kind of structural change that's kind of tilted against us. All these structural changes since the 1980s make it harder. You know, that, that's very clear. It's, it's kind of hard to find the right policies. Uh, but you can do better than what most countries have done. And you see that some countries, again, the Nordics are good examples. They also have their problems, but they, they have got some things right and better than others. Um, policies clearly matter. So, therefore, politicians matter. So, you know, if, uh, if there is a Biden presidency, then I think there are good opportunities. And I think there's been a lot of good thinking in terms of policies. This is where you actually started out our conversation. Mm. New ideas and more radical ideas have now entered the mainstream. So I think, especially with COVID, where so much has changed in so little time, the question, in a sense, isn't whether we will get radicalism, but, but what form of radicalism we'll get, and will it be radicalism in defense of a liberal centrist vision, or will it be the radicalism of the extremes that right. you know, makes us hark back to the 1930s? Okay. I don't want to overcomplicate this next question, but I may not succeed in, in, in not overcomplicating. I want to talk about um, Brexit, uh, but through the prism of immigration. Uh, yeah. since you talk about that a lot in your book. But then add on uh, your comparison you also make between Norway and the UK. I should point out yes. to listeners, if I'm not mistaken, you can tell me if I'm wrong, you were born in Norway, Martin. That's right. Too, That's so right, maybe yeah. there's slight maybe bias there coming out. No, I'm just, I'm just teasing. But you do make the, the case that when it comes to, to Norway, they did a much better job at absorbing immigration. Obviously, it's a tinier, much smaller country. Uh, can we try and put those two together, the, the impact of immigration in the Brexit vote four years ago and, and why the UK didn't do as good a job as, the, as Norway in absorbing and coming to terms and accommodating uh, yeah. new influxes? Of it's, it's, it's a really good question. And, uh, and you're right, I don't, want to, uh, you know, I don't want to paint the Nordics as this ideal. We kind of, it's very easy to kind of get mesmerized and, and say, oh, we just have to be like them. But of course, each country is different. You have a, a history, you have cultural and political institutions that are different. But what I try to do is uh, to look at places that have had policies that have worked and that could conceivably be copied elsewhere. So, so let's talk about immigration. Immigration was clearly important in the Brexit referendum, and it's, it's important in 
this assault on the liberal centrist model everywhere. And it's uh, supported in large part by a perception that uh, immigration, in particular low-skilled or immigration of low-paid people, they're not necessarily low-skilled, but they're in low-skilled jobs, uh, drives down, worsens conditions for native people in the same professions. Now, a lot of the economic studies actually struggle to find much of an effect there, a little bit, but which is kind of surprising, right? You would think that a large influx of low-paid labor makes things worse for those they compete against. But, you know, be that as, as it may, uh, the, the, the illustration of this example that you mention, uh, what that shows is that there's actually a lot you can do to avoid this problem, even if it's real. So the UK and Norway both opened up uh, free immigration, free movement from Eastern Europe in 2004. Norway, not because it's part of the EU, but it's in the EEA and it's part of the single market and abides by the same freedom of movement rules. And while Norway is a much smaller country, then the size of immigration relative to its population from the East European accession countries was actually larger than the UK. So, so when you think about this large influx of East Europeans into the UK labor market, it was proportionally speaking as large and probably a bit larger in Norway. And yet, in Norway, you didn't see the same scale of public opposition to immigration that you did in the UK. In Norway, since 2004, you've had pretty high scores when you ask people, should immigrants have the same right to work in Norway as Norwegians? Maybe a tiny dip around the big refugee crisis in 2015, but strong support for that. So why is that? I think it's because Norway chose different policies. In particular, uh, Norway doesn't have a minimum wage because that's usually left to collective bargaining, uh, wage setting. But of course, a lot of the people who came in uh, were not covered by collective bargaining. They were not uh, union members. They were in sectors that weren't well unionized, cleaners and so on, construction. Uh, and Norway enforced effectively a sectoral minimum wage by administrative fiat, administrative extension of the outcomes of collective bargaining. So they said, you know, if this is a wage that's bargained for between the social partners, uh, then this will apply to everyone in cleaning was one of those sectors. Mm -hmm. So effectively introducing a minimum wage to stop standards from stop the pressure, downward pressure at the bottom. The UK did not do anything like that. In fact, it uh, it cut spending on labor standard enforcement, for example. It did late in, the, you know, after 2015, kind of push up the minimum wage a bit, but, but that was very late in the game. So these were different policy choices, both completely feasible, available to national politicians within a globalized world, within the, the EU single market. The UK chose not to do these things. Norway did choose to do these things. And I think that explains a lot of the difference. So it's an example behind my general claim that there's a lot you can do as a national policymaker that's perfectly compatible with an open economy and that will make things better. Right. Wait, a final question then uh, about the pandemic, Martin. You said at the beginning, like a lot of authors bringing out books around now, written j just before the pandemic yeah. hit, hit us all. Uh, but I need to, I have to ask you about, in your judgment, the impact of the pandemic now on Western e uh, economies. Let's, and let's maybe use the UK as, as a focal point. It seems that we're all Keynesian interventionists now. Um, I, I note with a wry smile that you start the book with references to Franklin D. Roosevelt, and you refer to him on many occasions in, throughout your book. Uh, 
And of course, Boris Johnson likes to compare himself to FDR now as well. So the simple question, maybe complicated question at the same time, is to what extent has the pandemic made things more difficult for governments to, to address some of these issues? Because obviously the economy is taking a huge hit. Or on the contrary, uh, are people more now open to the idea of opening their pockets, opening their checkbooks? Because that's the, way, the only way to deal with the crisis. Yeah, I think... Uh... Uh, you know, on 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 Roosevelt, I noticed uh, the, this new Rooseveltian rhetoric uh, from Boris Johnson and, and Michael Gove, and you know, I'd like to think that it's because somebody in number ten read the opening pages of my book, but but who knows? Let's hope they follow through with the policies too. Uh, I would I would highlight three big effects of the pandemic. So one is purely economic, that these uh, inequalities and these uh, processes of divergence that I talk about in the book have been intensified by the, both the pandemic and the economic response to it, the lockdowns. It turns out that it's the people who are already at the sharp end of these long structural uh, changes have been hit the worst by the pandemic. They're more likely to lose their job. They're more likely to be furloughed. They're more likely to have reduced earnings and so on. And they're also more likely to be exposed to, uh, to contagion because they are much more often in jobs that require physical presence. Uh, second, I think there's been a greater public awareness, both of this, this, this intensification of inequality, but also the previously existing inequalities. So people have started to realize under what conditions their cleaner or their delivery driver or their supermarket shelf stocker works. Uh, and that wasn't the case before. I think that is going to matter. The third big change is political. Uh, and if you look at the policy choices that have been made in, in every country, uh, pretty much, they, they have been radical, right? There have been enormous economic interventions. Think, uh, think about the furlough scheme in the UK. Governments have uh, been very willingly going into debt, into large deficits in order to sustain the economy. And of course, the intervention of the lockdown itself is a huge uh, intervention in peacetime, these sort of restrictions on uh, on economic activity. So willy-nilly, even centrist politicians have become accidental radicals. And that also makes a difference. Um, Emmanuel Macron told the FT in an interview uh, a couple of months ago that you know after this, citizens will demand, if you could be this radical to combat the pandemic, why can you not do big things in order to address other social problems? Yeah. We will see if he's right. But I think the argument is there. You cannot. Uh, you, you can no longer say, "Oh, you know, that that's too much to do." So again, I think radicalism now is very much on the table, and it's really a question of what form the radicalism takes, and in defence of what and who. All right. Well, we have to leave it there, Martin Sandbu. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me.